One week after 9-11, an FBI special agent interviews a prisoner in a New York City jail. I walked in and I sat down with him and I said, well, let's tell me how they did it. Immediately after the terrorist attacks, authorities placed the prisoner in 24-hour lockdown. For a week, he's been in total isolation with no access to TV, radio, or newspapers. You know. What he laid out was the attack as if he knew every detail of it. This is how you position yourself. I've taught people how to sit in first class. I told you about utility knives. It was just kind of eerie. The prisoner is this man. My name is Ali Mohammed. He was Osama bin Laden's spy in America. He worked for and betrayed three arms of the U.S. government, the CIA, the U.S. Army, and the FBI. An extraordinary triple cross. He paved the way for al-Qaeda in the United States. Hello, everyone. That was an excerpt from the documentary Triple Cross, all about the subject of today's interview, Ali Mohammed. Now, so far in the series, we've talked about the United States arming and training the Mujahideen in Afghanistan and Central Asian theatres. We've talked about the assassination of Jewish radical Maya Kahani. We've talked about the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center, the Landmarks plot, and the bombings of the embassies in East Africa. But we haven't said much about a figure that's central to all these events, Ali Mohammed. And the reason we haven't is that there's so much to say Ali really deserved an episode all to himself. He's the double or triple agent who worked for Al-Qaeda, the US military, the CIA, the FBI, and maybe Egyptian intelligence too, and is perhaps the key figure in understanding the state's working relationship with terrorists. Now here's Adam Fitzgerald starting with some information on Ali's background leading up to the relevant events. Uh, Ali Mohammed is a very interesting figure in his own right. And um, well, he was born in Egypt in 1952. His family were well-educated people. His father enlisted in the Egyptian military. Uh, Ali was raised a devout Muslim at home. Following in his father's footsteps, he enlisted in the Faro Military Academy. And after his graduation from high school in 1970, he continued to excel in his studies and obtained uh, a bachelor's in psychology uh, while learning to speak English, Hebrew, and French. Um, and he also joined the Egyptian army in 1981. And he stood at this position there for the next 10 years. Um, Ali Muhammad was taking part in a program uh, for foreign officers at the U.S. Army Special Forces School uh, in North Carolina during the fall of 1981. Egyptian President Anwar Sadat was assassinated by Islamic radicals from Gamma Islamida. And in 1984, Muhammad was forced to resign his status within the Egyptian army for being too radical in his beliefs. Um, it was also here he approaches a CIA station located in Cairo to become a spy. Um, after some formalities with the agents, the agency accepts his offer, and immediately he travels to Germany where he makes contact with agents in Hezbollah, on the Hezbollah branch there. Uh, meanwhile, the, meanwhile, he tells the Hezbollah branch that he's working with the CIA unequivocally and irresponsibly in my book. But uh, meanwhile, the CIA states that Muhammad tells uh, Hezbollah that he's a CIA spy and stops to attack later, found out that uh, that's not to be the case. And there's gonna be some contradic contradictory claims by the CIA allowing Muhammad uh, to 
abscond from the CIA itself, and they, they cease operations with him. But um, there's contradictory statements that, that he still continues to be a spy for them. Okay, well, let's just clarify that, because it, this sure. is like the first really thing that, that sticks out to me about the, the story that, okay, he's recruited by the CIA, and he's um, a military officer, okay? So it would seem like the most amateurish mistake you could make in the world would be right. to um, announce that. So his motivation for announcing is that he's a double agent because he's really an Islamic radical. Um, so it's he's trying to play the CIA. He walks in and he says, hey, I'm, I'm really of the CIA. Um, but of course, you're going to assume that you're not necessarily the only agent they have in that organization at that place, right? Um, so it's a story that that the first part of, of many things that don't really make sense. Okay. And then leading on from that, uh, he's still able to get in. I don't, there might be some more you want to say before you come to this, but um, when the CIA ostensibly terminate their relationship with him, he is then still able to travel to the United States. That's correct. He actually applies for a U.S. visa and he gets it. And not just a U.S. visa, but a multi-entry visa to travel freely uh, inside and outside the United States. And you would think, that with the CIA actually knowing this information, um, that they would put him on a watch list, a terrorist watch list, knowing that he's actually someone who is quite dangerous and has contacts with uh, militant agencies such as Al-Jihad in Egypt and Gamma Islamiyah as well. Um, and actually, he actually uh, also has contacts with Hezbollah, not just in Egypt, but also in Lebanon as well. And you would think that the CIA actually put him on a watch list not from entering the United States. Not so. And like I said, there were contradictory statements within that agency in Cairo that they didn't stop operations with Muhammad, but they actually let him conduct operations in the United States. And I'll get to that because in 1986, uh, in 1984, he entered the United States. And in 86, uh, Muhammad, uh, uh, Ali Muhammad enlisted in the U.S. Army in North Carolina, where he works as a supply sergeant for the Green Beret unit. Uh, he actually is in the Green Berets in less than a year, which is miraculous in its own right. But he's actually well fit. He's actually intelligent. And he's a drill sergeant at Fort Bragg. And meanwhile, he's hired to teach courses on Arabic culture at the, at the John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center and school in, in, in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina. And it was around at this very same time, Ali Muhammad takes part in a video series called uh, Middle East Focus Series. Muhammad would have discussions with um, individuals in the military about how Islam, without political affiliations, cannot survive. So in the series, Muhammad fields questions from American officers and doesn't hold back in his statements regarding his disposition toward Israel and how Americans are generally regarded as ignorant to Arab affairs. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's fascinating videos to watch. I'll, I'll link to them below if anyone wanted to see those clips. It's um, a couple of things I pick up on that one. It's, it's not really clear to me what's going on in those videos. Like the, the narrative put forward is that this is Ali Muhammad sat there with the Green Braves expressing his true beliefs about how there can be no, um, there can be no spiritual Islam without a political Islam and Islam must come to dominate and speaking very much like the radical Muslim fanatic. Okay, and it's not clear uh, from watching them if this is his truly held belief or if he's doing this as a kind of role play exercise. So the narrative we're giving is this is his truly held belief, right? But there's, there's maybe other factors that um, contradict that in his life. Um, 
And I think another point that's probably worth mentioning, because uh, it speaks to the nature of the, the man, is how he met his wife, right, in that he met her just on the plane going over to the United States. It, it, it sort of speaks to a certain um, charisma and charm to be able to form a deep enough connection of someone uh, that you would then get married to them afterwards, you know? Yeah, correct. Exactly. So I'm glad you brought that up about his wife. Um, but yeah, I mean, it goes to show you that this guy is not just a, um, a seemingly effective uh, manipulator. He's also someone who's conducting mental warfare operations as well. Like, like you said before, how do we know his true uh, genuine intentions? He could be giving off this radical fundamentalist persona while conducting uh, this persona in regards to the Central Intelligence Agency itself, trying to portray this radical inside the United States, inside the military-industrial complex. Um, but he gives off this, this aura as well. But, I mean, also that it goes back to your point about regarding why he would go to Hezbollah and admit that he's a, C a Central Intelligence agent right away, almost seemingly right away, knowing that that group had to have agents within their own right going back to such and telling what happened. And that's exactly what happened. So it's very foolhardy, but maybe he did that on purpose. I don't know. But that in itself is, is the most important aspect, that we don't definitively know the true motivations of the CIA and of Ali Muhammad. Okay, and that's yeah. why. And that continues, right, because um, there's a period where he goes off to Afghanistan to train the Mujahideen, ostensibly right. just off his own back. It's like his summer vacation is going and doing that. He, it doesn't seem to let him in too much trouble. Do you maybe want, but, but that's all also congruent with the CIA's policy at the time, right? So, but, do you want to maybe speak to that? Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I was just, I was going to bring that up because it was at this time that uh, Colonel Lieutenant Colonel Robert Anderson, who's Ali Muhammad's commanding officer, he detailed a report to the Army Intelligence about Muhammad's radical beliefs and wished for them to investigate the matter, but his reports were ignored and dismissed. And that's when Anderson realized that Muhammad was not just a special forces officer, but he was protected by the Central Intelligence Agency. And But Anderson even thought it was ludicrous that an officer would take part in a foreign war in Afghanistan because that's where Muhammad took part in in 1988-89 because he flew over there and when he came back to the United States, he wasn't expunged or he wasn't punished for that because no uh, officer in his own right would go to Afghanistan and participate uh, with the Mujahideen and come back without any um, any uh, reparations in his own right. Yeah, I had no fear of talking about it to his right, commanding too. officer. Exactly right. And, w and when he knew that he wasn't being punished for his own right and still within the Green Brace, he knew right away that he was part of the Central Intelligence Agency. Now, meanwhile, his neighbor's back home because he owned a home in Santa Clara, California, as well as in North Carolina. Meanwhile, this guy, I'll, I'll bring up in the future, this guy's going to have a lot of homes in a lot of places, but his, his neighbor's back home in Santa Clara, California, knew Ali Muhammad was working for the intelligence services because Muhammad was telling friends back home he worked for the CIA and that he hoped to do so in the future again. Um, he, he also connects with a person named... Um, Khalid Abdul al-Wahhab, who is an Egyptian medical student in, in Islamic Jihad. Now, he's in Egypt at the time, but Dahab moves to the United States at Ali Muhammad's insistence. And both men traveled to Afghanistan in 1990. 
And um, at, at uh, his back and forth travels, Muhammad would find time to visit also the Al-Kifa Mosque in Brooklyn, New York. Yeah. And here, here, here he would give firearms training and military training to members of the Alma of Darakman cell. Yes, just to remind the audience, the, the big things we've talked about so far, if you go back for the series, the assassination of um, Maya Kahani. I think I said that wrong before. I think I said the assassination of Al-Sayed Nasser. He was the assassin. Okay. Uh, the World Trade Center bombing, uh, the Landmarks plot to blow up various sites in New York, and the embassy bombings. Ali Muhammad has been in and around all of these, right? So, And, and they, they're all centered around this Al-Kifa Center in Brooklyn, New York, and Ali Muhammad has been involved in all of them. So maybe start, or if you want to start there, Adam, and talk through what his involvement was in, in, I think, mostly training the people who carried out these acts. Well, yes, he, he was actually training, like, the people of the Omar del Rachman cell, called the Brooklyn cell. And um, meanwhile, Rachman also entered the United States in 1990 while being on a terrorist watch list. Uh, and then Rachman was approved for his U.S. visa in the, in the U.S. Embassy in Egypt, and that disapproval for the visa was under the offices of the Central Intelligence Agency. They it was Fra Frank Wisner's son, the famous CIA guy, Frank Wisner, his son um, approved Rackman's visa, but he was a, the, the blind sheikh, right? As he was, that, that's what we, we made the point in an earlier video, that radical Islam came to the United States at the invitation of the CIA. Right. Now, to go back to your point, but the Brooklyn office branch, which is located in, which is the Al-Kifa, uh, mosque is the Maktab al-Kidamat, which in, in Arab, it translates from the Arabic, is called Afghan Services Bureau. And that's, it's called Al-Farouk, which was a, a business center for this uh, service center located at the Al-Kifa uh, Mosque itself in Brooklyn. It was covertly funded by the Central Intelligence Agency. And Muhammad would also rent a place in New York, also while renting homes in California. Now, Muhammad stayed at the home of El Said Nusser as well. And according to a New York Times report in 1990, Ali Muhammad is honorably discharged from the U.S. Army with, with commendations in his file, including one for patriotism, valor, fidelity, and professional excellence. Um, however, he remains in the U.S. Army Reserves for the next five years. And at around the fall of 1990, Muhammad also becomes an FBI informant in the San Francisco field office. Also, at this time, uh, the, we see the assassination of Rabbi Mayor Kahani, a radical Jewish fundamentalist from the JTF, the Jewish Task Force, by El Said Nusser, the same individual who shared the home of Ali Muhammad, and who also trained Ali Muhammad in tactical warfare. Uh, Ali Muhammad trained El Said Nusser in tactical That's correct. Yeah, yeah that's, right. that's right. This is the one of the really interesting things is when the um, the New York police force raided outside the SS house after the assassination. They found a lot of documents in Arabic, which they claimed they couldn't translate. The FBI couldn't translate them. Um, but they also found Fort Bragg training manuals, right? Now you think anything was going to have a, like a red light there. It'd be how, how did this guy get us special forces training manuals? I'll, 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 uh, a little, I'm going to detail that further with you. Um, when the agents from the FBI New York uh, field office and the NYPD raid the home of Doser, not that they just find military documents for Fort Bragg, but they also found ammunition, maps of the city with circular marks around highlighted areas of Lower Manhattan and Brooklyn, 
They also find, like you said, Arabic documents, bomb-making formulas, details of an Islamic militant cell, and mentions the name Al-Qaeda for the first time that we see. Also, detailed and top-secret plans for Operation Bright Star, which was a special operations training exercise simulating an attack in Baluchistan, where who grew up? Ramzi Yusuf, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, a, a part of Pakistan between um, Afghanistan and the Arabian Sea, videotape talks of Ali Muhammad delivered at Fort Bragg, which you'll link in your video below. Much of this incriminating and damning evidence of Ali Muhammad. Now, what do they do? The FBI, however, decides to act that this assassination was a part of a lone government theory, just Al Said Nusser, and did not investigate the matter and what it should have been which was a larger radical extremist group which had nefarious plans for New York City in itself. Sure, and the, I think it's worth mentioning the reason given, as I understand it, is um, there's the perception that if you go after a large conspiracy, you might lose the conviction of the person you know is guilty, right? So it's the same thing that was um, the FBI said about Timothy McVeigh after the Oklahoma City bombing, why they didn't look for the um, the larger group he was involved in, which everyone knows existed involved in in the bombing um that the, in looking for a large conspiracy proportioning blame might become more ambiguous and they lose the conviction of outside Nasser in this case and that there was no perception of this wide islamic terrorist threat so there wasn't this sense of urgency around translating the arabic in the documents there correct and i think this was brought up and i hate to use them but steve emerson in a uh documentary he did way back and he brought up uh, the fact that they didn't uh, necessarily translate the uh, the documents because there was no pertinent information but if we didn't translate the documents how would you know that mm. i think the fbi probably did but they just whitewashed the issue and in the book called a uh, thousand years for rent written by peter lance he actually brings up the fact that the fbi was actually uh inequipped to deal with the larger conspiracy because they only had like two agents and that was John Antisov and um, Mike Napoli working in the terrorism, counterterrorism task force. So now would they just ill-equip also too that they probably didn't want to admit that there was a bigger, larger conspiracy regarding uh, this uh, radical, uh, radical fundamentalist group and that they probably knew that there was a bigger group but they just uh, decided to say that uh, when they, I'll bring it up later, when they arrested Landmark's plot, that they finished with the group and they said there wouldn't be any more. And I think they actually believed that. But um, I'll continue with Ali Muhammad. In, in 1981, Muhammad travels to Sudan and meets with Osama bin Laden, who has moved there under pressure from the kingdom's monarchy in Saudi Arabia. Here, he's met with reverence, and actually bin Laden tells him to go and locate and find American and Israeli targets aboard and tried to photograph and potential targets of a bombing attack. Um, but in 1992, Muhammad travels to Bosnia and he trains Mujahideen fighters there. Um, but you, he uses the alias Abdul Abdallah. And he's part of a 14-man Al-Qaeda team made up of retired U.S. military personnel that enters Bosnia through Croatia to train and arm Mujahideen fighters. Okay, and as, as we talked about in the episode on the breakup of Yugoslavia, that will be entirely consistent with U.S. policy in Bosnia to support the Islamic factions. That's correct. And according to a, an Associated Press report, 
uh, the 14-man team are smuggled into Bosnia one by one in December of 92. The team is said to have sponsored by a mosque in New Newark, New Jersey. Now, when he returns to meet with bin Laden in 93, bin Laden is impressed and asks Ali Mohammed to set up an al-Qaeda cell in Nairobi, Kenya, to support al-Qaeda operations against U.S. intervention in the neighboring country of Somalia that same year. And in February 1993, the World Trade Center North Tower is bombed. And the Wall Street Journal reports that investigators went back to Nocera's personal possessions and they finally saw a link to one Ali Muhammad. Top secret U.S. military documents, obviously supplied by Muhammad, are found in Nocera's possessions. Still, no action is taken against Ali Muhammad. Meanwhile, in the spring, now go ahead, you were going to say something. Well, you, you might be about to bring this up actually, but I, I think that what jumped off page at me is after that, Ali Muhammad is able to re-enter the country, the FBI are aware that he's doing so and he's not picked up. I think he, he crosses over the Canadian border into the US. Yeah, I was going to, I was going to bring that up yeah, in just sorry, a bit. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, no, that's all right. But, uh, but in the spring of 93, Muhammad helps Al, I mean, this is important though, Ali Muhammad helps Ayman al-Wahiri enter the United States for fundraising tours and even acts as head of the security during his stay. Now, this is before anyone knew who Ayman al-Wahiri was, and this is apparently his second visit to the United States, having previously paid a recruiting visit to the al for Refugee Center in Brooklyn in 1989. Okay. Now, John Zent who is Ali Muhammad's FBI handler from San Francisco, finally decides to interview Ali Muhammad with Army intelligence investigators because the pressure was on. Uh, There's a lot of incriminating evidence that um, Ali Muhammad's training individuals abroad. Uh, and of course, the, uh, the FBI investigation with Ali Saeed Nasser. Muhammad remarkably tells the investigators that Muhammad bin, uh, Osama bin Laden is planning to build an army of Mujahideen fighters to attack the Saudi kingdom for the insolence in allowing American military to station there. Early in the year, FBI investigators discovered that Muhammad stole many top secret military documents and gave them to Islamic militants here and abroad. No action was taken to Ali Muhammad, which was uh, shocking to many people in the intelligence community at this point. However, Muhammad faced no trouble from the Defense Department about this. Now, this would be a consistent course of action, which many in the FBI began to question if Mali was being protected by the Central Intelligence Agency. In December of 93, Muhammad is detained by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police after attempting to meet with a known professional counterfeiter named Essa Marzouk. Muhammad admits that he traveled to Vancouver to help Marzouk to sneak into the United States and admits working closely with Osama bin Laden. This is astounding information. Muhammad then tells the Canadian officials to call John Sent, his handler at the FBI. Zent confirms that Muhammad does work for the FBI as a confidential informant and asks him to release him. Miraculously, they do. Meanwhile, the FBI took part in a raid in a warehouse in Queens when FBI informant Imad Salem took part in monitoring members of the Al-Qaeda Hamas dubbed the Landmarks plot. And the FBI arrests numerous individuals, including Omar Abdel Rahman. In 1994, Mohammed Atef, the Al-Qaeda military commander, is actually suspicious about Ali Muhammad 
and believes he's working with American intelligence services. It was around this time that U.S. investigators from the FBI finally began monitoring Ali Muhammad. And the FBI agents traced phone calls from Muhammad's California residence in Santa Clara and link them to Bin Laden's satellite phone and to Bin Laden Associates in Nairobi, Kenya as well. In late 1994, agents discovered that Muhammad is temporarily living in an al-Qaeda safe house also in Nairobi, as well, in, as, well as, here in the, as here in the United States, in, in New York, and in California. In the winter of 1994, Muhammad returns to the United States, and on December 9th, he's interviewed by an FBI agent named Harlan Bell, and Assistant U.S. Attorney Andrew McCarthy, who is one of the prosecutors for the upcoming Landmarks plot trial. Later, during the first weeks of December, Muhammad is subpoenaed to testify in the trial. But when the trial starts on January 3rd of 1995, Muhammad cannot be found, and he never responds to the subpoena. It's alleged that McCarthy told him to ignore a subpoena not to testify for reasons unknown. I don't know why. But meanwhile, Muhammad has scouted potential targets for Tin Laden in Africa, taking photographs of U.S. embassies, highly populated areas in downtown in Morocco, Libya, and East Africa. In February of 95, the U.S. government files a confidential court document listing Bin Laden and scores of other people as possible co-conspirators in the, 19, uh, in the uh, New York City landmarks plot. One of them was Ali Baham. He was on that list, and which was confirming to investigators that they were aware that Al-Qaeda was probably behind this plot. In 96, 1996, FBI agent Jack Clunan, who was part of the I-49 uh, task force team, which was a, a team made up of prosecutors and investigators which are focusing on bin Laden, began ramping up their investigations into Ali Muhammad. And this, around this time as well, they began bugging the home of, his, of Ali Muhammad's Santa Clara home in California. Um, meanwhile, Jack Clunan, Patrick Fitzgerald, and FBI Harlan Bell take Ali Muhammad out for dinner to a restaurant in Sacramento. The purpose of this meet was to hope to finally having Muhammad become a cooperating agent for them and to finally uh, insinuate what they knew all along was that he was part of a radical Islamic group called Al-Qaeda. And meanwhile, Muhammad has reiterated many of the following statements profoundly in front of all men. One, that he organized bin Laden's move from Afghanistan to Sudan in 1991, that he admired bin Laden, that he asserted that he doesn't need a religious edict to make war on the United States, since it was obvious the United States is the enemy, and that jihad against America can be waged at any time that they are an enemy to an Islam worldwide. After dinner, Clooney will recall that Patrick Fitzgerald turned to him and said, this is the most dangerous man, quote unquote, this is the most dangerous man I've ever met in my life. We cannot let this man out on the street, end quote. But Peter Lance, author, will later note that, quote, but that's exactly what he did. Patrick Fitzgerald allowed Ali Muhammad, after making all those incriminating statements in front of him, to go free, end quote. Even though, at the end, Muhammad, Ali Muhammad firmly rejected the offer to cooperate. In 1997, the office of the, the FBI office in San Francisco began monitoring Ali Muhammad's computer in his home. However, journalist Peter Lance believes that 
given Muhammad's apparent foreknowledge of the embassy bombings, which come later, the computer probably contained references to that operation. And in his book, in his book, Triple Cross, he asked, quote, if U.S. agents had access to Muhammad's phone and hard drives, why didn't they come to understanding his role as a key player in the embassy bombing plot? If their, motives, if their motive was to lie and wait to monitor his phone and email traffic, why didn't they surveillance put them right in the middle of the embassy plot, end quote. Warnings would go up all about the U.S. embassies in East, East Africa in 1998, in the beginning of 1998. However, these warnings would go unheeded because on August 7, 1998, two U.S. embassy bombings are bombed, one in Nairobi, the other in Kenya. The bombings killed 213 people. In Kenya and Tanzania, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, Kenya and Tanzania. Thank you for the correction. The bombings killed 213 people and injured more than 4,500. Two days, two days after the U.S. Embassy bombings in Africa, the FBI interviewed Ali Muhammad over the phone. He says Al-Qaeda is behind the bombings, but he doesn't know who the perpetrators are, and he won't give out their names, even though he knows exactly who the perpetrators are. He lies to them. On August 24th, a team of federal agents secretly searched Muhammad's apartment in California. His computer's already bugged, and they know what's going on there but they take out the floppy disks and they finally retrieve the hard drives. They also copy the CD-ROMs and the floppy disks and photocopy documents in his home. Finally, on September 10th of 98, Ali Muhammad is secretly arrested. His arrest came while he was leaving a grand jury hearing and Patrick Fitzgerald was on the prosecutor team that subpoenaed Muhammad to appear. According to Fitzgerald, quote, Ali Muhammad lied in that grand jury proceeding and left the courthouse to go to his hotel, followed by FBI agents, but not under arrest. He had imminent plans to fly to Egypt immediately after the grand jury. It was believed at that time that Muhammad lied and that he was involved with the Al-Qaeda network, but Muhammad not, had not by then been tied to the embassy bombing. The decision had been made at that moment whether to charge Muhammad with false statements. If not, Muhammad would leave the country. That difficult decision had to be made without knowing or reviewing the intelligence information on the other side of the wall. It was ultimately decided to, to arrest Muhammad that night in his hotel room after, end quote. In May of 99, U.S. investigators, along with the FBI, had finally come to a formal agreement with Ali Muhammad after eight months of intense negotiations with his lawyers. Prosecutors have been attempting to get Muhammad to cooperate and tell all that he knew about Al-Qaeda in return for a lighter sentence. Ali Muhammad pled guilty to five counts of conspiracy to kill nationals of the United States in connection with the 1998 embassy bombings in Kenya and Tanzania. The San Francisco Chronicle similarly notes shortly after 9-11 that Muhammad has never been sentenced and that defense lawyers and security experts believed he had begun giving evidence about bin Laden to the government in hopes of winning release from prison. To this day, no one from the FBI or the CIA, whether they're talking or not, are aware of Ali Muhammad's whereabouts. And I think that they do know, they're just not talking that most within the FBI blame 
the Central Intelligence Agency of Muhammad's clandestine activities as far back as 1998, I mean 1989. The CIA has not mentioned anything about Muhammad's contacts with their offices in Germany or in the United States. And Muhammad's current whereabouts are still not known publicly. He also has not been formally sent for his role in the embassy bombings and most likely never will. Okay, is there any precedence for that? I don't because like all the major figures in uh, terror, um, we do know the where like Terry Nichols' whereabouts of the Oklahoma City is known. Um, Ramsey Youssef, um, I, 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 you know the prisons these people are at, even right. Um, Sheikh Omar Rahman is dead now, but he was um, the, the whereabouts were known. They were sentenced, and their whereabouts were known. Right? I don't know if there's any precedent for even people who were, who were never um, put on trial. You know, they're at Guantanamo Bay or maybe the black side around the world or something. Um, but they're not put on trial. Is there any precedence for someone who, is, who um, confesses certain charges, isn't sentenced, goes to jail, but is, it, the whereabouts are completely unknown? Actually, this is the first time I've heard of any type of individual in organized crime or terrorist-related crime that uh, has given prima facie evidence of his own uh, complicity in the attacks and has never been sentenced. And I think the one glaring uh, reason is that the intelligence agencies like Central, I think basically the Central Intelligence, not just the FBI, but the CIA as well, uh, didn't want egg in their face, so to speak, because he was actually working or playing all the agencies involved. And it was the Central Intelligence Agency who had given him his U.S. visa. It was the FBI who knew about Ali Muhammad. Uh, being a terrorist, but allowing him to roam inside the United States, and not just roam, but also being part of uh, special forces in, in the military-industrial complex as well. Um, so here's a guy who's not, who's not just playing the Central Intelligence Agency, but the FBI, the Pentagon, and being a part of uh, known terrorist networks like Al-Jihad uh, and Gamma Islamiyah, as well as having ties to Osama bin Laden himself. Can you give a sense of um, Ali's importance to these groups, okay? Like, is he one of several dozen people who are doing a, a similar job in them, um, or even several hundred people? Or does his skill set from the U.S. Special Forces and Egyptian military uh, mean that he's really valuable for those reasons in terms of spotting bomb-sighted embassies and... Um, training up al-Qaeda militants. Do, do you have a sense of his, um, his value to these organizations? Yes, absolutely. In fact, I think he was of, of utmost importance. I think he's actually probably uh, one of the very few people in the world who can actually give tactical guerrilla training, not to just, uh, not to just subjects at uh, the military academy in Greensboro, North Carolina, and the Green Berets, but also he was training Mujahideen fighters in Afghanistan, Bosnia, and Croatia. Here's a guy, and also in Tanzan, uh, in um, Somalia as well. His level of intelligence and his level of expertise in both fields is really rare because there hasn't been an individual in Al-Qaeda, so to speak, I'll just deal with them, maybe... Abu Zubaydah, maybe, but not to the level that Ali Muhammad did. Ali Muhammad was giving not just tactical training, but also um, operational training, planning, um, operational planning, 
Um, here's a guy who could bl draw blueprints on the, on the deal. He actually uh, knew where specific spots in the U.S. embassies to bomb. Um, also, uh, tactical training to how to assassinate people. And that was hijackings too, right? He right, hijacking his life. Right, because he was actually giving tactical training to Algerian uh, uh, Mujahideen fighters in Algeria as well, who were involved in the France 8989 uh, um, uh, hijacking. Uh, was that the plan to crash a plane into the Eiffel Tower? Right, right. I, 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 I was remiss in not uh, bringing that up. And it was just a small story. But yeah, he actually was training the uh, AIG in Algeria as well for hijackings. So here's a, here's a guy who has remarkable in-depth intelligence, not just in the guerrilla tactics, but also into operational tactics as well. Am I right in also saying that he was involved in the training of the guys um, in Black Hawk Down, the shoot down yes. of the American helicopter in Somalia? Because there's a particular way to take a, a helicopter down where you have to fire the rocket propelled grenade at the tail fin and um, and, and, and then the, the ensuing shootout he, he was he was a trainer of those guys directly wasn't he he, he actually trained the guerrillas under the uh, leadership of uh muhammad farah adib who had the largest uh, uh guerrilla uh, uh, operations in somalia and he actually trained the soldiers in how to use rocket propelled grenades and how to shoot them at helicopters aiming as you pointed out in the tail section so they could be down and the reason why he didn't want to explode them was to, so that they could capture the uh, the soldiers and hold them for ransom and to hold them and to, to extract information from them. Because he didn't want to just kill them. He oh, actually wanted to extract information from them as well. And that's, that's, that's expert training. And that would not be known to like Al-Qaeda subjects or Asahab subjects and other Mo Mogadishu uh, operatives who are just, you know, just you know, dumb, just grunts. Ali Muhammad was well above that mentally. He was an expert in that, in that field. He wanted to extract information from the soldiers. And that's why he wanted to shoot there. Uh, he wanted to shoot at the, 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 at the uh, helicopter's propellers so that the helicopter, not just that they could extract information from the soldiers, but also gain information for what kind of helicopters these, these uh, actually they were using the logistical operations of the, of the helicopters themselves, the technical aspects as well. It's ingenious what he was teaching them, actually. Okay. Okay, so it seems to me there's, there's a couple of ways of viewing this story, right? One is you have this idea from Ali Mahab being a triple agent, right? And this is the, um, the perspective put forth in Peter Lance's books, uh, which I think are brilliant, right? They're like a thousand years of revenge on my favorite books on... Yes, the whole nine eleven issue. I think to, to gain a great understanding, and um, Peter Peter Lance to to read him or to uh, hear him interviewed has this kind of anger and indignation at the intelligence agencies um, for the years prior to nine eleven in allowing figures like uh, Ali Muhammad in particular and Sheikh Omar Abdul Rahman into the country um, and to you know, effectively they were protecting them. But he he sees it as a kind of like intelligence error that ultimately the CIA were outthought and outmaneuvered by this crafty fox, Ali Muhammad, and he was secretly working for Al-Qaeda all the way along. And this is a, you know, a cock-up, basically. Um, and then you have, like, the other perspective, and maybe people like uh, Sibel Edmonds, the uh, FBI whistleblower, would would uh, speak about this this way of like Ali being um, his 
ultimate loyal, well, whether whatever his ultimate loyalty was, him being much more closely a tool of the CIA, um, where in, in this perspective, um, crossing the line and saying that he didn't he didn't go rogue. He was carrying out the um, the wishes of his handlers in set, like training these bombers and with the assassinations and particular with the uh, the bombings of the U.S. embassy that Ali was acting. Um, as an agent carrying out the, the, the goals of US foreign policy in these areas. Um, it kind of like a, a comparable to a, a Lee Harvey Oswald figure, say. So like, I, I wouldn't know which one of those is true, to be honest, um, but I could certainly see both perspectives on it. What, what are your thoughts on um, how to understand what Ali Muhammad's ultimate motivations are? Well, I, 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 would, I would agree with you. I think that he did try and play the Central Intelligence Agency, but they allowed him to make such egregious uh, actions in their name in the hopes of him carrying out uh, their long-perceived plans for foreign policy in the region. And that was to have these Mujahideen groups located in Croatia, Algeria, Afghanistan, properly trained and funded from these agencies, much like Central Intelligence Agency, MI6, Mossad, Israeli Mossad, Pakistan, ISI, in hopes of having a destabilized Middle East. And to have proper military training, they needed to have an operative inside these groups. And that operative was Ali Muhammad. So and you're suggesting he was something of an unconscious agent provocateur, that he was, um, he himself might not have been aware that he was carrying out the CIA's wishes. Absolutely. Um, now, do I have evidence of this? No. But when you look back at his history, you do a more in-depth uh, history, go to historycommons.com. Uh, history and that's the, you know, probably the best site I can refer you to. And it'll go into really in-depth uh, profile about Ali Muhammad himself. Yes, I actually think that he actually was, I actually think that he actually was putting one off on the Central Intelligence and not, not just the CIA, but the FBI as well. But I think the FBI, um, might have been uh, duped in that regard. I don't think so with the Central Intelligence Agency. I think the CIA exactly knew what they were doing handling Ali Muhammad. And I just don't think that Ali Muhammad knew that they knew that much. I just think that they, he thought that um, they were just being duped themselves. But they had to have known. He had to have known also, too. Maybe his ego got in the way regarding, say, for example, when he told Hezbollah that he was a CIA agent and that they, that he probably didn't realize that that group could have been um, perpetrated by other agents as well from the Central Intelligence Agency and that they would go back and tell uh, about what happened with Ali Muhammad. That had to have been the case because why would he just come right out and say it without having repercussions from the Central Agency well, in that regard? I think when you say things like you don't have any evidence for a position, I think there's there's evidence for various positions, right? And what what, what we're confronted with is a mystery. Like Ali Mahmoud is a story that doesn't quite make sense, however you look at it. And um, you know, you could say there's evidence that he was an Al Qaeda figure through and through who played the CIA. But equally, you look at the story a different way, and there's evidence that the CIA used him to achieve its nefarious goals in. Eastern Europe and Eastern Africa. 
and and uh, you know I could I could see there being evidence of both those positions. Right. I, 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 now, I, what I'm saying is that there's no direct evidence to say that um, that he was being direct that he was being manipulated by the FBI in terms of like documentation and stuff like that. But no, he's being used, and I think that the Central Intelligence always knew that. And I think that he wasn't just the only one. I think another person like that would be Omar Abdel Rahman himself. Yeah. Now, just my intuition um, with Omar Abdel Rahman is that he seems to fit the mold of someone who is unconsciously being manipulated, right? I don't, I don't get the sense if he goes into a private room with CIA guys and, um, you know, they tell him that the agenda is to bomb the World Trade Center or something. He seems to be someone who... Um, is being used to carry out certain goals, but he he he's not aware of that himself. Right. I think there was a New York Times article after the bombing had happened that the reason why he was allowed to conduct these sermons, even though at the Al Kifa uh, Mosque, um, I'm sorry, the Al Kifa Refugee Center. I kept calling it mosque. Uh, is the Al Kifa Refugee Center? The reason why was because he was an informant himself, and he was an informant for the FBI for that long and that the FBI knew about this information regarding Rahman and they didn't care. And that the central intelligence say he considered the FBI hypocritical. And I should have brought this up with when we talk about Ali Muhammad was that that was one of the reasons why I think that the agent's name for the central intelligence was called John Anderson. And he states later on that the FBI was actually, they actually knew about Ali Muhammad's activities inside the United States, just like they knew about Omar Abdel Rahman, because he was an informant for the oh, FBI. Okay. Well, maybe that, maybe that sort of contradicts what I've just said. Maybe he was more conscious of his role than, than I perceived, yeah. I, I, but, but then again, but no, I think, I think you're right about he was unconsciously used by the Central Intelligence Agency. I think that's correct. Because remember, like I brought up in the interview before, they gave uh, Rahman his visa. And not, he was he was approved his visa not once, twice, but four times. And he was on a terrorist watch list. And it was CIA agents posing as consular embassy agents in that Cairo embassy office. So they, they knew that this guy was bad news and still gave him his U.S. visa. He, and I think he, not that Bachman knew about this, but he, here's a point that, here's evidence that he's being used. That's what I believe with, with Rahman. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Adam, any further comments on, on Ali Muhammad? No, I think we, we covered up uh, pretty much a long, broad ground regarding that. And the problem with Ali Muhammad is this, and it goes back to your point, that we really can't put like a definitive finger, so to speak, the proverbial finger, and say, this is who he is. Because his whole life, basically starting from his formulas early, late teens, so to speak, has nothing but been a question mark. And that we probably will never know about the man himself or what he, what he actually was or who he was actually being used by or uh, who, which agency was actually conducting uh, the, the character of Ali Muhammad. But we can probably put a pretty good piece together regarding which agencies were involved in his uh, conducting his operations inside the United States as well as abroad. And that was the Central Intelligence Agency. And that's, pro that's probably the best I could do for Ali Muhammad. Okay, so like 
many issues in this series we've um, we've been doing. Ali Mohammed is a figure for me that raises far more questions uh, than he answers. Um, but we will proceed with the series and, and generating more questions. And next time we're looking at the millennium plot as we get right up close to 9-11 now. Okay, thank you very much, Adam. And I will see you next time. Thank you for having me, Richard.